Happy New Year. I don't put much stock in the years anymore. I don't know about you. But I put stock in Jesus, amen? He's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. So do your work on us, Holy Spirit. Get your Bibles out this morning. We're in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to bring to you part two of the miracle of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. We've been in a long series about the miracles of Jesus. I hope you're uh, expanding your faith for the miraculous in your own life. These are not just stories we read about. They're uh, living testimony to the fact that greater things than this shall he do. Amen. Our God is still a God of miracles. I said our God is still a God of miracles. And he's got one for you. You say, I need a miracle in my body. He's got one. I need a miracle in my marriage. He's got one. I need a miracle for my children. He's got one. Amen. God is a God of miracles. Here we see him healing a centurion servant uh, in chapter 7 of Luke. We said that there was also an account of this in Matthew. Uh, two of the gospel writers include this in their gospels. We're going to use Luke as our main text. We noted some differences between the two texts. Uh, part 3 of this message, I'm going to bring some of the points in from Matthew. But today we're going we're gonna to focus in on just a few more verses here. Uh, as we jump into verse 6 and read through the first part of verse 9. I'm going to stop in my tracks right in the middle of verse 9. So let's just uh, start in verse 1 here. I'm going to give you the whole background. Let's thank God for the word. Father, I thank you this morning for the word of God that you've given us as a gift. I thank you for the fact that you have made us sons and daughters. And as your sons and daughters, you've given us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open up the word to us this morning. Allow it to leap off the pages let us encounter the truth and the principles that you've hidden in here for those who seek you with their whole hearts. The Holy Spirit, drive the truth that the Father has for each of us as individuals into our hearts today, that we, it would remain there for eternity. We ask that in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion's servant who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he had heard about Jesus, he sent some of the Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his servant. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, listen, <coughs> not listen to me cough, but listen to this, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and we stop right there. Jesus is out and about doing what he does. He seems to walk into one miracle to the next. Why? Because the Father's leading him. You know, he encounters this man. He, he comes into Capernaum, and they meet him with this request, and it's urgent, and we see that this, this centurion, basically a Roman, a pagan, 
not a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's just, you know, on the outskirts here. He has all these friends who are Jewish elders, and he sends those friends as proxies for him to go to Jesus and to implore him to do a miracle on behalf of his servant who is dying. Now, we noted that this guy had good friends. You know, think about it. When you're in trouble, when I'm in trouble, when I'm in crisis, if you can count on one hand the amount of people who will stand up for you, who can inconvenience themselves for you, who will go to bat on your behalf. If you, if you fill up one hand, you're doing good. This guy had good friends. How many friends? Oh, I'm your friend. Can you help me out? Oh, I, I'm, I'm too busy. I, I got to stay home. I got to wash my hair. I got to water my cactus. I'm really busy today. Come on, some of you get that. You know, they'll just make excuses. But this guy has friends who are... They're not Gentiles, they're Jews, and they go on his behalf, and they testify of this centurion's character. They're like, look, this guy deserves what he's asking for. He deserves a miracle. He loves the nation of Israel, and he's built us a synagogue to worship in. What a great report of this man's character. Having the right friends and the right character in a time of crisis is very helpful. If you find yourself in crisis and you've surrounded yourself with people who are not of good character, or you've conducted your life in a way that, that is not good, you're gonna find that you know in that moment, you're in a mess that there's no help for you. Good friends and good character. Last time we were in this text together, I encouraged each of us to examine our friends, to think about the five people who are closest to us. I cited some statistics that the fact is that we are the average of the five people we've allowed to be closest to our lives. Now, if you think about that for a second, that can be sobering, considering some of the knuckleheads we have as friends. Come on, I know it's church, and I know I said knuckleheads, but let's, let's get real here. Some of the people we allow close to our lives that don't bring us close to God, that don't provoke us to godliness, that are ungodly, that are trying, they're involved in everything that's offensive to God, and we've surrounded ourselves with those people, and we wonder why there's so much resistance and friction and trouble and drama in our lives. Come on, am I preaching to somebody today? Friends and character, they will be a great asset to us in times of crisis. When I'm in a crisis, I want people around me who know God. When I'm in crisis, I want people around me who know how to praise. Come and say amen. amen. They know how to hear God. They know uh, how to seek God. They know how to see with the eye of faith. You can get so many people around you that'll talk down your dreams and, and tell you to shrink back and tell you to quit and throw in the towel because they don't see with the eye of faith. But if you know when you're surrounded with someone who, who trusts God and believes God and knows God and hears God and they can speak into your life in that moment, that's a great asset to all of us. All of us are going to find ourselves in times of crisis. So consider those that you surround yourself with. Consider your own character and know that those will be assets to you in times of trouble. Verse 6 starts off by saying, then Jesus went with them. So he thinks enough of the testimony of these guys to say, yeah, okay, I'll go and heal this guy's servant. And that says something in and of itself. You know, Jesus didn't just get tugged around by anyone who grabbed him first. He only did what he saw the father doing. And so here these guys come and they testify and, and it strikes a note with him. The, the Holy Spirit of God is leading Jesus around uh, from place to place. And this is a divine appointment here. So they hear the he hears the testimony and immediately he goes to heal the centurion's servant. Now, according to Luke, 
when the centurion gets wind of the fact that Jesus is en route to his house, he sends out a second group of proxies on his behalf. So he sends out one group of friends. That group of friends is leading Jesus to his house, and the centurion's like, oh, I, I can't allow this. So he sends more people to talk on his behalf. Now, you might look at that and, you know, say, what's going on here? This guy is really avoiding contact with Jesus here. He's got all kinds of people speaking on his behalf. The message that this second group of friends brings to Jesus is dripping with humility. Listen to what he says through these people that he sent to speak for him. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should be under my roof. Wow. We know a lot of people who say things that sound humble because it's just the right thing to say. Have you ever heard somebody say something that was humble and you knew they didn't mean it? Did you ever hear proud people say humble stuff and go, well, that was hard for you, but you got it out? You know, maybe a spouse that uh, under duress of, uh, you know, maybe at gunpoint says, I'm sorry. Some of you won't smile for anything. Yet, here's the report, here's the testimony. Uh, He sends out this group of people. He says, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Now, I want you to notice something. The Jewish elders that just went on this guy's behalf just spent all their time giving basically a three-point message of why this guy was worthy of a miracle. They're like, this guy is worthy of a miracle. He loves us. He loves the nation of Israel. He's built a synagogue for us. He's just a great guy. They're building him up. The Jews are saying he's worthy of a miracle, yet his own estimation of himself is, I'm not worthy. Wow. That's true humility. When others can see good things in you and, and, say, and, and communicate them to others, but you yourself still see yourself as lowly, as humble, as not worthy. You know, the attitude that this guy has here is amazing. Have you ever encountered somebody with an amazing attitude? Sometimes it's amazingly bad. Have you ever looked at somebody and just, you're amazing? You hear people say stuff and you're like, wow. Wow. It's been said before that your attitude determines your altitude, that an attitude of gratitude is what we said. There's all kinds of attitude sayings. And the thing I've noticed about every person I've ever met is we all have an attitude. This guy had a really humble attitude. And you know what? It seems so sincere here that he just, you know, sees himself as not worthy. Everyone else is saying, this guy deserves a miracle. He says, I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. That's an amazing attitude. And it's one that we should learn from because it's actually the exact attitude that the Bible wants us to have throughout scripture. We're seeing that God esteems people who have a lowly, you know, humble servant attitude like this guy has. Listen to some text this morning. Proverbs 27, two. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Did you hear the proverb right there? That's exactly what happened here. These guys come and testify of him. He doesn't go to Jesus with his resume and say, these are all the things I've done. I'm a pretty swell guy. What do you think? No, other people are willing to go on his behalf. And that's just what the proverb says there. Let another person's lips praise you and not your own. It's amazing how many people merchandise themselves or build themselves up or 
puff themselves up or try to sell themselves to others. And this is not just in the world. This happens in Christian circles. It happens in ministry with ministers. Never try to sell yourself. Never try to puff yourself up. Never try to convince someone that you're something, you know, that they don't see in you. Come on, Sunday morning. Proverbs 27, 2. How about 1 Samuel 15, 17? The prophet Samuel speaking to Saul, who was uh, chosen by the people to be king. Listen to what Samuel says to him. When you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? Look at that. When you were little in your own sight. This is what God wants from us, not to puff ourselves up, not to think too much of ourselves, not to tell everybody how awesome we are. Hello, are you buying what I'm selling out there? Yeah, I know you are, but I'm talking to the rest of them. Pastor Mike gets all excited on the front row there. I'm talking about everybody else behind you who's just looking at me. You know, we, we live in a world that merchandises itself. Oh, yeah, look at me, look at me, look what I've done. And all the pictures and the posts and the this and the that, our best side, you know. And the bot, look, look that's, that's something as Christians we've got to reject. And we've got we've to grab a sense of humility, and it has to be genuine. Not just words, amen, but genuine humility. This is what God requires from us. And this guy who's supposed to be a pagan and not know God. He's got it. He's got this humble attitude. Listen to Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly according to how God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So some people need to sober up and not think more of themselves than the other. Why? Because they're drunk with this idea of who they are and how important they are. That's the world we live in. How, how about Philippians 2 and 3? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of us esteem, brace yourself, others better than ourselves. Wow. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. The first service I talked about, the fact that self is a God in our culture, that's to be worshipped. Everybody's encouraged to be into themselves. And, you know, we got th- people out there who, you know, they've got their own, you know, web page and news feed and post and TikTok and all this stuff and self, self, self. And, you know, there's actually a magazine called Self Magazine. People can, you know, read Self Magazine while they're thinking about themselves, how to better themselves. You know, and it's all about self. Every article, self, self, self. That's the world we live in. And, you know, it's con- it, it contradicts what the Scripture's asking us to be, the character that the Word wants us to have, the attitude of humility that allows God to bless us. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't need God resisting me. I need to humble myself up. This guy, oh, he's worthy of a miracle. That's what his friends say. That's a great report. He says, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Now, let's be honest. Who of us are worthy to have Jesus under our roof? None of us. Here, let me help you with the answer. Nobody. In fact, when I ask the question again, answer me. Who's worthy to have Jesus under their roof? That's right. Nobody's worthy. Yet this guy's willing to admit it. 
Some of us think, oh, well, Jesus would like to come over. We cook good here. The house is clean, you know. We got the dust out of the corners. Our medicine cabinet is nice. He can go through it. He can look and see. Come on, you all got that one relative. Why are they in the bathroom so long? What are they doing? Going through your stuff. This guy had an amazing attitude. It was humble. He, he was sincere about it. And none of us are worthy to have Jesus under our roofs. Yet the fact is this, that all of us who are in Christ, who are born again, not only have Jesus in our homes, but Jesus in our hearts. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what a beautiful thing, a humble attitude, an attitude of humility here, one that we should have. And the fact is that we do have Christ in us, so we should be humble at all times. Verse 7 and 8 gives us a glimpse of the centurion's thought process. And it's not only dripping with humility, it's bristling with faith. And I want you to see that these next couple verses here, we're going to kind of get to have a look under the hood and see what this guy is thinking. You know, how many times have you been sitting there and somebody asks you, what are you thinking? Come on, married people. Guys, how many times have you been sitting there staring at the TV with that blank look on your face and your wife says, what are you thinking? We always want to know what somebody else is thinking. Usually when I tell her what I'm thinking, she doesn't look impressed. That's what you were thinking? And I know what you're thinking. I should be thinking about you. I know. I, I'm, I'm working on it. But here, here's an opportunity to find out what this guy is thinking. It gives us a glimpse of his thought process here in verse 7 and 8. And it, it's pretty staggering about what comes out. He says in 7, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So we're catching a glimpse of the thought process here of why, you know, this guy has come to this conclusion here. Uh, humility is one thing, and, and, and his idea of being humble is great, but he also brings faith to the table. Now, we talk about faith a lot because it's important in the kingdom of God. Faith is the currency of the kingdom. If you don't have any, if you, don't, if you go out tomorrow morning without your wallet, without your ID, without your debit card, and there's nothing in the bank, you're broke, you're in trouble out there in the world. Yeah. The currency of the kingdom is faith. Some of us are trying to operate in the kingdom, and we have no, we have no means to, are you getting me here? The flat, flat broke in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's not money, it's not stature, it's not charisma, it's not memorizing scripture, it's having faith to believe God to do what he says he can do in our lives. This guy, he has humility, but he also has faith. I don't think myself worthy to even come to you. Now, that's humble, amen. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. That's why I sent out the, the second group of guys. But I sent out the first group of guys because I didn't even feel worthy to come to you. Wow. And how many of us have felt like that in life? 
hey, I'm not worthy to come to you, Jesus. We, we run from God. We, you know, maybe we weren't serving God. Maybe we were raised in church, but we didn't, you know, we didn't profess faith in him ourselves. But, you know, we're doing our own thing and we're running from God. Now we're in trouble and we feel like, man, I, I'm, I can't. People say to me all the time, oh, I can't come to church. The roof will fall in. And I say, well, it's leaking already, so you might as well come on in. <laughs> you know, it's just an excuse, right? But this guy's being sincere. He's humble, and at the same time, he has faith. You know, I didn't even think myself worthy to come to you. This is why I sent other people, you know, to speak on my behalf. Now, I want to say something about that. He sends two groups of people out, and we're catching this here from Luke's perspective. Uh, the reason that the centurion sent out these people to speak on his behalf could be mi easily misconstrued. There would be people who would look at this and say, you know what, the reason he sent these guys out to do his bidding is because he thinks he's too good to do it himself. He thought, oh, you know, I'm this big centurion. You know, I'll send somebody else to talk to Jesus for me on my behalf. That's beneath me. No, that wasn't his attitude at all. But could you see how somebody could judge that, misjudge that about him? How many times do we misjudge people? You know, you know we think, well, this person, is, they don't talk to me. They must be conceited. Maybe they're just shy. Or this person didn't, you know, acknowledge me when I came in. They don't like me. Maybe they're just, again. And they could have looked at this centurion and they could have been, you know, like, look, who does this guy think he is? But yet Jesus gets his heart here and he communicates his heart. Look, I'm humble. I have, you know, I have this humility and I have this belief. And, you know, I didn't think I was worthy to come to you. So, you know, people will misjudge the motives of others. And I want to say something to us this morning. We need to be careful of judging others, period. Especially when it comes to motives. Now, people will say things to Christians like, well, you can't judge me. Look, if you're, if you're in obvious sin, if you're in adultery, if you're in fornication, if you're stealing, lying, cheating, and I come to you and say, stop doing those things. Hello, that's not me judging you. That's me lifting up the standard of the word of God and saying, look, this is for all of us. Stop doing that. People do all kinds of wicked sin and they'll be like, you can't judge me. Oh, yes, I can. Watch this. It's the word of God. I'm just going to bring it to you. That'll do the judgment. But you and I need to hold up the standard. But when we start trying to, you know, predict other people's motives and intentions, wow, then we've really crossed the line. And this is what it means about being judgmental. Do you know what? 99.9% .9 of the time we judge another person's motives, we wind up being wrong. Some of you are looking out there, no, I'm probably 75%. I'm pretty good. No, we're usually wrong. You know why? Because we don't know all the facts. We don't know the details, and we don't know their heart, and we don't know their motives. Only God does. So we got to be careful about judging others. You know, who is this guy? He sends people to speak for him. He should go grovel before Jesus' feet and, and, and judgment that would be there. Now, in the book, Illustrations of the Bible by H.A. Ironsides, he points to the folly of judging others and relates an incident in the life of a man called Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was sailing for Europe on an ocean liner, and he discovered that he would be sharing his cabin with another passenger. After meeting his cabin mate, Potter went right to the purser's desk and asked if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he never checked his valuables, but upon meeting his cabin mate and judging from his appearance, he thought it might be a good idea because he didn't seem like a trustworthy person. 
The purser checked the potter's items and remarked, it's okay, Bishop, I'll be glad to take care of that for you. And by the way, your cabin mate was here an hour ago and checked his valuables for the same reason. <laughs> while we're busy judging people, they're judging us. And while we think, you know, well, they look like, you know, they don't have good character, they're thinking the same thing about us. Could we just agree to give people the benefit of the doubt? I got two yeses. I got a lot of murmuring. Look, I'm looking for a response here. Could we just agree to give people the benefit of the doubt? Amen. Well, they're from this group, or they're from that race, or they're from this nationality, or they're from the Bronx. You know, that, that's all. You know, and then we got these preconceptions, and we judge. They're from Brooklyn. Now, I'm not saying to be stupid. People have to earn trust, but... We, we misjudge the intentions and the motives of others, and it's a waste of time, and we shouldn't do it. Uh, verse 7 continues here, and the display of great faith is about to take place. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Listen to this. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Wow. That's powerful faith right there. And, and when you understand the context of where this guy is coming from and how much of a, a view of Jesus he really had, it's even more incredible faith. Remember, this guy had only heard about Jesus. He never met him. He never sat in church. He didn't read the scripture. He didn't know the messianic prophecies. He didn't sit under the Jewish teaching of who the Messiah would be. He, all he did was hear about Jesus. And he heard about the type of things Jesus was doing and he came to the conclusion that this guy wields great spiritual authority. Now, what I want you to understand here is that, you know, when he recognizes Jesus's authority, his level of faith explodes. He, he's about to trust him to be able to meet his need here. Now, this guy, this Roman centurion does something that the Jewish religious crowd was never able to do. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were never able to grasp what this pagan recognized that Jesus had inherent spiritual authority. The Pharisees and Sadducees were always saying to him, by what authority do you do these things? Come on, you remember? And they'd always try and question him. How, you know, how could you heal on the Sabbath? By what authority? Jesus would never answer them. He'd say, you know, well, you answer me this and I'll answer you that. And they never could and they never got an answer because they were so blind they couldn't see his obvious spiritual authority. But yet this Roman, this pagan, this foreigner immediately recognizes it and exercises great faith. I don't know about you, but that inspires me. How much have I known about Jesus and seen him do and read about him and watched his hand in my own life? How much more should I trust him and believe that just a word from his mouth can change my whole situation? Come on today, church. This guy had only heard about Jesus, yet he comes to the conclusion He's got great spiritual authority. That level of faith is off the hook, and we need more of it. Verse 8 gives us the logic behind the centurion's faith. He's saying, I understand authority, and that's what we got to get here. For I am a man placed under authority. And he, he knows, look, I tell soldiers what to do. I tell my servants what to do. I have authority. They submit to it. I speak, and they do. <clears throat> so he's taking his understanding 
of authority and applying it to the obvious spiritual authority he sees in Jesus and he's exercising his faith here. Now, the, the guy's logic is, um, you know, I'm, I'm under authority and I see your authority. So I believe that when you speak a word, just like I speak a word, it'll be done because you said so. That's powerful this morning. Here's what I want to say about faith and logic. You know, logic would say, well, you can't just speak a word and heal a person. I mean, you know, you can't not even be in the room. You got to at least, you know, pray a prayer or lay hands on it. You know, we have all these rules and regulations about how God can do things and how healing works and, and how prayers are answered. You know, this guy just says, I, I'm under authority. I recognize your authority. Just say the word. Now, faith and logic or science and faith or faith and the facts are not mutually exclusive. Meaning that, you know, we can believe in science, we can believe in the facts, but we can also have faith. Come on, this is not a trick. I'm just, I'm just telling you. Faith and science are not enemies. Neither are they diametrically opposed to each other. Some within the intellectual community like to mock those who are in the faith community and falsely claim, well, you can either have one or the other. You can either believe in science or you can believe in God. And I'm here to tell you that that's exactly not true. You can actually believe in both because, listen, science and God, God and the facts, faith and the facts work together. The more I see the creation and, and science unfolds it and you see you know, life and how it works and the planet and everything, the more it proves to me that there is a creator who put all of this together, amen? They want to make it one or the other. Well, choose God or science. Well, I choose both, but God is first. And understand some things here. I believe in science. I believe in the laws of the universe. You know, I believe in gravity. I hope you do too. If you don't believe in gravity, meet me after church. We'll go up on the roof and we'll do a test. And you will limp away with a better understanding of gravity. I believe in science. I, I, I believe in mathematics, biology, virology. I believe in modern medicine. But having said all that, I know that while these things can and do coexist together harmoniously, there are instances where faith and, and what God can do is bigger than the facts, bigger than the science. See, at some point, God is bigger than the facts. You, you say, well, how is that true? Well, the science said that Sarah and Abraham were too old to have a baby. But yet Sarah conceived in her 90s and brought Isaac, the son of promise, because God said so. The science said it was impo it's impossible to have a virgin birth, yet Jesus was born of a virgin, was laid in a manger, because God said that's the way the Messiah would come to earth. The science says that it's impossible to walk on water, to calm stormy seas, to wither a fig tree with just your words, to walk through walls, to make sh shriveled limbs and withered limbs grow back, to make the blind see. But Jesus did all of those things. The science says, well, you have cancer. We can see it under the microscope. We know where it is. But somebody laid hands on you and anointed you with oil and prayed the prayer of faith over you, and now the cancer's gone and they can't find it because our God is bigger than the science. He's bigger than the facts. He's bigger than the natural laws. Faith and the facts can work together just as long as we know as those rules don't apply to God. 
So this guy, you know, he's got some logic here. He's got some facts. He's got some reasons as to why he believes this, and he exercises his faith. Now, the faith that's expressed by this centurion is pretty interesting. It's simple faith. It's not complicated. You know, many people try to make spirituality and connecting with God complicated. And you know what? Coming to God and having a relationship with Jesus is not complicated. And those who try to make, well, it's deep, it's complicated. You know, it's not deep, you're just muddying it up. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you make it difficult for people to come to God with all your rules and your regulations and, you, you, you know, your ideas and your rituals. You make it difficult for people to come to God. You're supposed to facilitate the process, but you're just putting roadblocks up. See, it, Faith needs to be simple. This guy's faith is simple. It's pure. It's almost childlike. You know, it's, it's not overcomplicated. It's not, you know, it doesn't have 38 different points. I understand authority. I, I recognize your authority. Just say the word. Wow. We used to say things like when I was coming up in Christianity, God said it, said it, that settles it. I believe it. You know, stuff like that. You heard things like that. God's word says it. I believe it, that settles it. Anybody? That's good childlike faith. Well, I need to think about it. I need to pass it through the intellectual test. I need to pray about it. I need to consult the blah, 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 blah. No, you need to hear what God says, believe it, and settle it in your heart. This guy had only heard about Jesus, recognizes his authority through the things that he hears that he's doing, and exercises this incredible level of faith that you're gonna see, it blows Jesus away and it shames the religious people all around him. We're gonna talk about that, God willing, in the weeks to come. But here this guy is, he's expressing this childlike faith and we need more of that in our lives. We need more of it in our homes. We need more of it in our churches. To just, to believe what God said and then to just to have the faith to watch him do it in our lives. Now I wanna close down with this. Our world gets very uncomfortable with people who have faith like this centurion. This guy just believes. This guy just, I mean, he didn't test it out. He didn't prove it. He didn't question it. He didn't dissect it. He just heard and he saw and he believed. No, the world is very uncomfortable with people who have faith like this. The world is very uncomfortable with Christians who actually believe the word of God and apply it to their lives. Oh, you can be a Christian. You can go to church. You can carry your Bible around. But don't start, you know, telling me that, you know, that stuff can change your life or that it's for me too or that, you know, God hears and God involves himself in the affairs of man. That's just crazy talk. The world looks at people that believe that God speaks to them like they're crazy people. How are you crazy people out there? Is God speaking to you? Does he answer your prayers? Can you hear his voice? Does he move on your behalf? You know, they say things about them like they take the Bible literally. They're fundamentalists. Like the Taliban. You know, that's what they say about us. Fundamentalists. <laughs> Makes people uncomfortable when we believe the word, when we believe God answers our prayers, when we believe he hears us and he heals us and he intervenes in our lives. And I say, for the first message of 2022, let's make people uncomfortable so they can encounter 
the presence of the risen God. I'll close with this this morning. On April 30th, 1976, Evelyn Mora, a, a climber, attached a rappelling rope to a drain pipe grating on the roof of the Mark Twain County Bank. Mora was an experienced climber who had climbed 14,410 feet up Mount Rainier in Washington State. This rappelling demo from the bank was routine for her, but she made one fatal miscalculation. The drain pipe grating she anchored the rope to was not anchored. A large crowd gathered below as she put her weight on the rope and the drain pipe grating gave away and she plunged to her death in the eyes of the crowd. Unlike that drain pipe grating today, the word of God has been secured. It is a stable anchor for our souls. If you trust his word, if you trust his promises, if you trust in his son, Jesus Christ, you will not fall. The hold, the hold will be the anchor that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Don't trust things that are unsecured. Don't trust things that are unsecured in your life. Trust in Jesus because he'll never let you down. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I just thank you today for the principles you're bringing to us out of this healing miracle that Jesus did. And Father, I pray for each of us that we would evaluate the friends we allow into our lives. We would evaluate the character and the way we're living our lives so that when crisis visits us, we'll be secure in you, having you in our corner and having godly people around us. Father, help us to surround ourselves with people who provoke us to godliness, not pull us away from you. And Father, let us secure ourselves to the rock of Jesus Christ because in him we're safe and we'll never fall. You'll never let us down. Let us have humility. Let us have faith, Lord God. And as this centurion had, let us have childlike faith that impresses you and provokes you to do amazing things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise.